The sacrifice of Christ as an atonement for sin is the great truth around which all other truths cluster. In order to be rightly understood and appreciated, every truth in the Word of God, from Genesis to Revelation, must be studied in the light that streams from the cross of Calvary. I present before you the great, grand monument of mercy and regeneration, salvation and redemption, the Son of God uplifted on the cross. This is to be the foundation of every discourse given by our ministers. My name is William Earnhardt. I'm a Bible instructor in the South Florida area, and I just shared with you one of my favorite quotes from the book Gospel Workers, page 315. And this quote is especially true when it comes to the topic of the sanctuary and the cleansing of the sanctuary. I would like to uh, take some time this morning to look at that with you. The sanctuary is all about Christ. Everything in the sanctuary points to Christ. The lamb, of course, points to Christ. The, the candles, the light in the sanctuary, Christ is the light. Christ is the living bread that is found in the sanctuary. Everything in the sanctuary points us to Christ. And, and in the sanctuary, we see the plan of salvation. In Adam, all humanity sinned and was condemned to death. In Christ, that same humanity was reconciled to God and cleansed from all defilement and justified to life, as we see in Romans 5, 18. It was at the sanctuary where sinners met with God in Exodus 25, 22. Today, God meets with us in Christ. See 2 Corinthians 5, 19. The sanctuary was where God forgave sinners. And today, he forgives us in Christ. Ephesians 1, 7. That's found in Rebel, uh, Ephesians 1, 7. I want us to take a look here for a few minutes at the... Uh, cleansing of the sanctuary, the 2300-day prophecy. And in Daniel 8, 14, it says, and I'll be reading mostly from the New Living Translation. Daniel 8, 14 reads, the other replied, it will take 2300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary will be made right again. In the King James Version, it reads, and he said unto me, unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. Daniel 8, 14. Now the Bible refers to two sanctuaries, one on earth and the other in heaven. And in Exodus 25, verses eight through nine, it reads, have the people of Israel build me a holy sanctuary so I can live among them. You must build this tabernacle and its furnishings exactly according to the pattern I will show you. Exodus 25, 8 through 9. So there was a pattern that uh, Moses was supposed to build the sanctuary in the wilderness after. Where was that original pattern? Hebrews 8 
1 through 2 tells us, Here is the main point. We have a high priest who sat down in the place of honor beside the throne of the majestic God in heaven. There he ministers in the heavenly tabernacle, the true place of worship that was built by the Lord and not by human hands. Hebrews 8, 1 through 2. And then in uh, verse 5 of Hebrews 8, it says, They serve in a system of worship that is only a copy, a shadow of the real one in heaven. For when Moses was getting ready to build the tabernacle, God gave him this warning. Be sure that you make everything according to the pattern I have shown you here on the mountain. Hebrews 8, 5. So what we see here is that there is a literal sanctuary in heaven that was the pattern for the sanctuary on earth. But what we need to realize, too, is that both sanctuaries are symbolic of the real sanctuary, which is our heart. It tells us in, in 1 Corinthians 3 and 1 Corinthians 6 and, and other places as well that we are the temple of God. So when a, a sanctuary is being cleansed, it's not so much about a building on earth or in heaven being cleansed as much as it is about a people being cleansed. And so let's, uh, let's move forward here in Exodus 26, 33. We see how many apartments did this sanctuary have? It says in Exodus 26:33, hang the inner curtain from clasp and put the Ark of the Covenant in the room behind it. This curtain will separate the holy place from the most holy place. Exodus 26:33. Hebrews 9:6 reads, when these things were all in place, the priests regularly entered the first room as they performed their religious duties. Hebrews 9.6 How frequent was the priest in the second apartment? Hebrews 9.7 reads, But only the high priest ever entered the most holy place, and only once a year. And he always offered blood for his own sins and for the sins of the people, the sins the people had committed in ignorance. Hebrews 9.7 What did the high, when did the high priest do this? Leviticus 16, 29 reads, On the tenth day of the appointed month in early autumn, you must deny yourselves. Neither native-born Israelites nor foreigners living among you may do any kind of work. This is a permanent law for you. Leviticus 16, 29. What was the priest doing? Leviticus 16.30 On that day, offerings of purification will be made for you, and you will be purified in the Lord's presence from all your sins. So there's a, a purification, being purified from all of our sins in this cleansing of the sanctuary, this cleansing of our, our soul temple. Leviticus 16.7-9 reads, then he must take the two male goats 
and present them to the Lord at the entrance of the tabernacle. He is to cast sacred lots to determine which goat will be reserved as an offering to the Lord and which will carry the sins of the people to the wilderness of Azazel. Aaron will then present as a sin offering the goat chosen by lot for the Lord. What did he do with the blood? Leviticus 16, 15-16 reads, Then Aaron must slaughter the first goat as a sin offering for the people and carry its blood behind the inner curtain. There he will sprinkle the goat's blood over the atonement cover and in front of it just as he did with the bull's blood. Through this process he will purify the most holy place and he will do the same for the entire tabernacle because of the defiling sin and rebellion of the Israelites. Leviticus 16, 15-16 What did the priest do with the sins? Leviticus 16, 20-22 reads, When Aaron has finished purifying the most holy place and the tabernacle and the altar, he must present the live goat. He will lay both of his hands on the goat's head and confess over it all the wickedness, rebellion, and sins of the people of Israel. In this way, he will transfer the people's sins to the head of the goat. Then a man specially chosen for the task will drive the goat into the wilderness. As the goat goes into the wilderness, it will carry all the people's sins upon itself into a desolate land. Leviticus 16, 20-22 This live goat represents Satan who is responsible for introducing sin to the people. Christ made an atonement for man's sin, but Satan still has to atone for his shared guilt in our sins by leading us astray, tempting us, introducing sin into this uh, world. The goat was led into the wilderness, which represents Satan roaming the world for a thousand years while the planet is uninhabited. And he gets to think about where his rebellion has led to. While Jesus atones for our sins by dying our death, Satan atones for his shared guilt by dying eternally. For more on this, Uh, Check out my podcast, which will be coming out soon or may already be out by the time you hear this on the uh, thousand years or the uh, millennium. But what are the people to be doing during this day of atonement? Leviticus 23, 27 to 29 reads, Be careful to celebrate the day of atonement on the 10th day of that same month nine days after the festival of trumpets. You must observe it as an official day for holy assembly, a day to deny yourselves and present present special gifts to the Lord. Do no work during that entire day because it is the day of atonement, when offerings of purification are made for you, making you right with the Lord your God. All who do not deny themselves that day will be cut off from God's people. Leviticus 23, 27-29 This Day of Atonement that we read about in Leviticus points us forward to the literal Day of Atonement. Just like the Passover was a shadow of things to come, 
which pointed us to the literal Passover when Jesus died for us on the cross. So likewise, the Day of Atonement in the Old Testament points us to a literal Day of Atonement. And in uh, Daniel 8.14, it said, Under 2300 days the sanctuary will be cleansed. In Daniel 9, it gives us the 70-week prophecy and tells us that it's cut off from the 2300 days. When we take a day for a year in Bible prophecy, according to Ezekiel 4.6, we find that the 2300 years brings us to 1844, when Christ entered the sanctuary up in heaven to begin the literal Day of Atonement, the literal cleansing of the sanctuary. And I, I know there are many people that say, well, the, the, our atonement ends at the cross. Well, if that were true, then the sanctuary would end with the courtyard. But we go beyond the sanctuary. We go beyond the courtyard into the sanctuary for the cleansing of the sanctuary. And we go beyond the cross into the sanctuary where God wants to cleanse our hearts. And this began, if we take the day for a year principle, this takes us to 1844. What happens to those still willfully living in sin uh, during this time, Leviticus 23, 29 to 30 reads, All who do not deny themselves that day will be cut off from God's people, and I will destroy anyone among you who does any work on that day. And when it's talking, uh, I'm sorry, that's the end of the quote of Leviticus 23, 29 to 30. When it talks about not doing any work on that day, it reminds me in Galatians 5, where it talks about the works of the flesh. And it describes the work of the flesh as murder, adultery, you know, all these bad things. And so I believe that it's the works, when it talks about not doing any work on that day of atonement during that cleansing of the sanctuary, it is the works of the flesh that need to be put away so that we can crucify the flesh and have the fruit of the Spirit. Soon, Jesus will be making an announcement in Revelation 22, 11 through 12. Let the one who is doing harm continue to do harm. Let the one who is vile continue to be vile. Let the one who is righteous continue to live righteously. Let the one who is holy continue to be holy. Look, I am coming soon bringing my reward with me to repay all people according to their deeds. Revelation 22, 11 through 12. During the cleansing of the sanctuary today, when that comes to an end, what will happen to those still sinning willfully? 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 9 reads, and God will provide rest for you who are being persecuted and also for when the Lord, I'm sorry, let me start all over. Second Thessalonians 1, 7 through 9. And God will provide rest for you who are being persecuted 
and also for us when the Lord Jesus appears from heaven. He will come with his mighty angels in flaming fire, bringing judgment on those who don't know God and on those who refuse to obey the good news of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with eternal destruction, forever separated from the Lord and from his glorious power. 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 9. But what will happen with the righteous? 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 17 reads, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God. First, the Christians who have died will rise from their graves. Then together with them, we who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord with the air, in the air. Then we will be with the Lord forever. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 17. So Christ is preparing a people who will be ready to meet him. These are the people who have the seal of God in Revelation 7, who reflect his character. You know, there is more uh, to the promise in John 14, 1 through 3 than just appears on the surface. When Jesus says, in my father's house are many mansions, that word mansions means abodes or dwelling places. And where God wants to ultimately dwell is right inside of us. Exodus 25, 8 said, let them build me a sanctuary so I may dwell among them. In John 14, 1 through 3, Jesus says, I'm preparing a place, a dwelling place, so that where I am, there you may be also. He's not preparing a place just made with bricks and mortar, not just a, a physical dwelling place. He's wanting to create a dwelling place where he can dwell right inside of our hearts. And that's what's taken 2,000 years. Christ isn't working, uh, taking 2,000 years, preparing a, a place for us made with bricks and mortar. What's taking him 2,000 years is he's working with our stony human hearts, trying to create a place where he can dwell right inside of us. And it's by his grace that he removes the rebellion from our hearts because sin separates us from God, according to Isaiah 59.1. Christ died on the cross to help us accept his love and accept his grace to remove the rebellion from our hearts so that he can dwell right inside us, so that where I am, there you may be also. In Matthew 7, 21 to 27, it talks about two groups that are found at, after the cleansing of the sanctuary and, and when Jesus returns. And in Matthew 7, 21 to 27, it says, Not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. On judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and performed miracles in your name. But I will reply, I never knew you. 
Get away from me, you who break God's laws. Anyone who listens to my teachings and follows it is wise, like a person who builds a house on solid rock. Though the rain comes in torrents and the flood waters rise and the winds beat against that house, it won't collapse because it's built on bedrock. But anyone who hears my teachings and doesn't obey it is foolish, like a person who builds a house on sand. When the rains and floods come and the winds beat against that house, it will collapse with a mighty crash. Matthew 7, 21 through 27. So when that decree in Revelation 22, 11 and 12 is given, let he who is righteous be righteous still. Those are the ones who not only heard the word of God, but by his grace followed it. And those who built their house on the sand are those who heard the word of God, but rejected it. During this time of judgment, what should we be doing? Revelation 14.7 tells us, Fear God, he shouted, give glory to him, for the, time he, for the time has come when he will sit as judge. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all the springs of water. So now is the time to give glory to God and to worship him. During this cleansing time, this cleansing of the sanctuary and this investigative judgment, what assurance do we have? Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 reads, So then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy, and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Friends, we are now living in the investigative judgment that began in 1844 and and, and again, I know there are people that say God doesn't need to have an investigative judgment. He already knows everything. Well, again, every feast in the Old Testament meets a literal fulfillment or points towards a literal and real event after the New Testament. And just like the Passover pointed to the real event of the cross, the cleansing of the sanctuary, this the, the people denying themselves and crucifying the flesh and putting away sin points to a literal event after the cross that we began, uh, we believe, according to Daniel 8, 14, began in uh, 1844. Remember, when God approached Adam and Eve in the garden and asked, have you eaten of that tree that I told you not to? God already knew. But in Daniel 3, we still find an investigative judgment. And so we realize that that is pointing towards what is to happen 
in the last days that we be- believe began in 1844. But we have assurance during this that we have a high priest who was tempted like we are, yet without sin. And so it says here in verse 16, let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. So when we're tempted, we can go to God. We can receive the grace to overcome the temptation. Grace gives us victory over temptation. In uh, Romans 1.5, grace gives us obedience. In Ephesians 2 verse 10, grace gives us good works. And in Titus 2, 11 and 12, grace helps us to live righteous, godly lives in this present world. Friends, we don't have to wait to get to heaven to live a righteous, godly life. God's grace, according to Titus 2, 11 and 12, helps us to live godly, righteous lives in this present world. But if for whatever reason we don't go to the throne of grace to overcome the temptation, Paul also tells us, who I believe is the author of Hebrews, but the author of Hebrews tells us, find mercy. There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. If we fall for whatever reason, we can go to the throne of grace. We can find his mercy. We find his forgiveness. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God's grace is there to help us overcome. And we want to overcome not to earn our way to heaven. We don't earn our way to heaven. Heaven is a gift. Eternal life is a gift. According to Romans 6, 23, we don't earn it. But we want to overcome to live a better life for God, to show our appreciation and our love for him. When Judah stood before Joseph, before he realized it was Joseph, after, you know, Joseph's brothers had been accused of being spies and everything, and Joseph was testing them, and one of the ways he was testing them was threatening to keep Benjamin, their youngest brother, as a slave there in Egypt. And Judah comes forward and tells uh, Joseph, our father has already lost one son. And of course that happened when they sold Joseph as a slave into Egypt. And so Judah says, our father has already lost one son and it broke his heart. If Benjamin doesn't return to our father, it'll break his heart. He'll go to his grave in sorrow. And Judah says, Keep me as a slave here. Let Benjamin go back to his father or it'll break our father's heart. What Judah is saying is, I would rather die as a slave in a foreign land than to ever break my father's heart again. 
Friends, we have broken our father's heart, just like Judah broke his father's heart when he sold Joseph as a slave. But just as it broke Judah's heart when he realized he broke his father's heart and he decided, I'm not breaking my father's heart again. We too, when we look at the sacrifice Christ made for us and we see how sin broke our father's heart, we don't want anything to do with that. And so we want to overcome not to earn our way from heaven. We want to overcome not to earn our way to heaven. Heaven is a free gift. But we want to overcome temptation because we don't want to break our Father's heart. We love him because he first loved us. And we look at the cross and the love from that cross cleanses our hearts from our rebellion to God. We are reconciled to him and we reflect his character. Friends, on the cross, Christ has died to save us from the power of sin as well as the penalty of sin. And we see that as we continue studying the cleansing of the sanctuary. Uh, We did a little lesson here. Uh, We can't cover everything uh, because it's just too great of a, a topic to exhaust in one presentation. But I want to encourage you to continue studying. If you would like to study with me or ask me more questions about this topic, please reach out to me at racer3 at gmail.com. That's R-A-C-E-R-T-H-R-E-E at gmail.com. God bless you.